Take out a Bible, open it to Exodus chapter 20. This morning we are opening back up the book of Exodus. This morning we're coming to a common passage, a passage you'd be familiar with, commonly called the Ten Commandments, but I'm going to call it the Ten Words. Traditionally that's what it's always been called, the Decalogue. It's known as the Ten Commandments, but the Scriptures never say that, just puts it as Ten words, and I want to tell you from the very beginning that this text is going to assert two extraordinary truths. Truths that we tend to overlook, truths that we don't give enough consideration for, and truths that our culture vehemently denies. And so two truths that are going to be foundational to us walking with Jesus well. So now you're wondering what they are, so I'll tell you. The Decalogue reveals to us first, tells us who God is. And it does something really important. Because when God tells us who He is, that means we don't get to define Him. We don't get to create Him. God saves us, redeems us, and then He declares who He is. Now I'm going to use a word a lot this morning. The word is self-revelatory. And it is a fancy word that says, God tells us who He is. Now we're going to lean into the implications of that here in a little while. But we have to have this base understanding that it's really crucially important that we understand God declares who He is. And then the second truth that we're going to pull from the Decalogue, these Ten Commandments this morning, is that it tells us who we are. And that means we don't get to define ourselves or create who we are. It means that the Bible has declared what man is. And what you see in Exodus is the God who finds the Israelites in slavery, saves them and redeems them, gets to declare who they are. So with that before us, Let's jump in and let's just pray over our time in His Word. Pray with me. Gracious Father, thank You for calling us together this morning. Thank You for the encouragement of fellowship. Thank You for the singing of songs that declare Your Gospel and who You are. Thanks, Father, for a church that prays together, that we can put our needs before You. And Father, as we open Your Word this morning... We ask that you would open our eyes, that you would open our ears, and that you would open our hearts. Father, we might see you, hear you, and learn from you. Father, would you minimize the distractions externally and internally. Father, that we might hear from you, and that you might nourish our souls. You might encourage our spirit, and you might challenge our will. Father, would you have your way with us according to your word this morning? Would you mold us, shape us, and bend us? We avail ourselves to you. That is our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning we come to the high water mark in the book of Exodus. We have seen God appear to Moses. 
We've seen God raise Moses up to deliver his people. We've seen Moses lead the people out of slavery. We've seen Moses lead the people through the Red Sea into the wilderness. And now they're at Mount Sinai. And I think it's important for us to keep all of this in context. So I want to remind you two weeks ago in Exodus 19, we started in what's caused the Mosaic Covenant. And it begins with this idea. God is forming a relationship with his people. And we put this before you two weeks ago because it begins on who God is and what he's done. Look at what it says, Exodus 19, 4 through 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You see, this basis of the relationship is what God has already done. So based on what God has done, he moves to verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God has declared, you've seen what I've done. God's declared how I bore you, how I brought you to myself. You start to see this relationship between God and the nation of Israel, and they come together and they agree that they're going to obey His voice, they're going to keep His covenant. And so God calls them to begin to prepare themselves. Because what happens in Exodus 20 is huge. Because what happens in Exodus 20 is God is going to speak now to the nation. Not through Moses. He's going to speak directly to them. He's going to declare himself to them. And he speaks what the text calls ten words. I've divided them into two sections. Historically, people have divided them different ways. We could get into a long conversation about it. I've divided them into two sections. You will quickly figure out that the two foundational sections relate to your foundational truths of who God is and who we are, if you want to think about it that way. So let's start into our first section, starting in verse 1 of Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, what he's about to declare, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, You shall have no other gods before me, the first. God speaks these words. How do we know about God? Because he tells us who he is. Told you I was going to use the word, here it comes. We need to embrace the idea that God is self-revelatory. He tells us who he is. He reveals himself. And I cannot tell you how crucial that is to orthodox theology, to true belief. That God declares who He is. And to help you see why that's important, let me give you some context. We live in a day and a time where people want to define God based on their biography. People want to define God based on their experience. They want to define God based on their biology. They want to define God based on their preferences. And I just got to tell you, church, we live in a time where we constantly hear people say things like, well, no God I believe in would do that. Or I'm not comfortable with a God who. 
And what I want you to see and what I want you to begin to pick up on, and frankly what I want you to never ever say, is that our view of God is not based on our impressions of Him. Our view of God as believers is based on how He's revealed Himself to us. That we believe that the four most powerful world words in a distinctively Christian worldview are the first four words in the Bible. In the beginning, God. That we believe God is preeminent. We believe God is sovereign. We believe He has dominion. We believe He has authority. And all of that matters because it all flows from the text. And what becomes sadly unfortunate is that many people deny those things because they make up their own opinions. They make up their own definitions. They move away from the Bible and they reject a God who has the authority to divine Himself. Picture this for a moment. When Pierce, my oldest, was a toddler. If Pierce came up to me as a two-year-old and said, Dad... I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to obey you. I'm not going to bed. Your rules are antiquated, and you're just trying to prevent me from having fun. What would the reality be? Well, I'd have picked him up, and I'd have set him back in his crib, and I'd have let him take a nap. Why? Because I'm his dad. And my authority over my son when he's a two-year-old has nothing to do with whether he sees it or believes it. I'm his dad. Friends, it's meaningful that God says to his people, I am the Lord your God. As if you don't get a choice. I am your God. You could deny me. That makes me no less your God. So God shows up and declares himself says, you shall have no other gods before me. God is claiming that he's their God and he's their God alone. We should pick up from this that we have a monotheistic faith. We worship one God. We don't worship multiple gods. We worship one God who alone wants your worship. One God who alone wants the authority in your life. One God alone is true. So as God is revealing himself, he takes it a step further. Not just declaring what's true about him, but warning us of pitfalls. We get to the second command, number two, verse four. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is under the earth or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Why? For I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. In the first command, he clarifies you to have one God. The second one tells us that he's not like any other God on the planet, that he's distinct. That true worship of God 
is not to worship an image of God. It's not to worship an idol of God. It's not to hand fashion some little symbol that you can worship in place of God. No, it's to worship Him alone. Church, we're to be reminded we don't worship things. We don't worship creations. Whether they're carved, engraved, or anything else you could make. You can't make or buy anything to worship. We worship God alone. And he tells us why. Because he's a jealous God. Fiercely protective of his people. Fiercely protective of his people. If Pierce, my two-year-old son, said, You know, Dad, the guy across the street seems like a better dad. I'm going to take him as my dad. What would happen? It's a terrible idea for a two-year-old to make that decision. It's a terrible idea. No, Pierce, we're going back home. I'm going to send you back in your crib. This is not how this works. Why? Because I love my son. God is a fiercely protective God showing steadfast love. This picture of steadfast love, it's the Hebrew word hesed. It's my favorite Hebrew word. It gives us this picture of an unfailing kind of love, an unfailing kind of kindness and goodness and gentleness. It's a word that's used to describe God's love, His covenantal love to His covenant-breaking people. It's God's word that says, I will be faithful to you always, even when you're unfaithful to me. God says, worship me alone. Brings us to the third one, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. You shall have one God who's worthy of worship. Don't make idols. And what this really gets to is, and don't take him lightly. To do something in vain is quite literally to consider something valueless. It's to attribute zero worth. It's to consider it futile. To take the Lord's name in vain is to say, God means nothing to me. I want to step into this for just a second because too often in our culture, we take taking the Lord's name in vain to have a specific context. If you use this phrase, you've done the unthinkable. And what I want to suggest to you, what God is asserting to his people is not a phrase, but don't talk about me as if I'm worth nothing. It's this better, bigger, broader perspective that God's name represents who he is. It clarifies what we believe about him, what we think about him, and it testifies to what we think. As I worked through these this week, I kept thinking of marriage. Marriage is monogamous by definition. You try to add someone to it, It's no longer monogamous. Try to add somebody to it, and you'd probably no longer be married. If I made a carving of Pam, and I started to honor this carving, and not Pam, it would really challenge our relationship. It wouldn't honor her at all. And if I started using Pam's name in a way that denoted that she was worthless to me, it would really challenge our relationship. Friends, we need to be mindful that God is a relational God, 
And he's giving us boundaries to show us, to reveal to us, not only who he is, but who we are. So he gives us boundaries to protect us and to reveal to us what true commitment and worship looks like. Don't use his name in vain. Finally, number four, verse eight. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them and rested on the seventh. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. We see this picture of God, that He's delivered His people. says, I am the Lord. You shall have no other gods. You don't make idols. Worship me alone. Don't use my name in vain. And then He says something that we shouldn't see coming. Remember the Sabbath. Now, I don't know how much consideration you've ever given to the Sabbath. Because prior to this study, I've always kind of thought of it in kind of this legalistic terms because people press it on you. Like, you better be taking a Sabbath. You better do this. Real people do this. Real people who love Jesus practice this. You want to take Jesus seriously? This is what you do. I want to challenge you to earnestly consider what's happening here. Because what God is actually saying is in the middle of the busyness of your life, in the middle of feeling like You are in control in the middle of feeling like you are responsible to make everything happen. The Lord God says as a function of who he is, he wants you to rest. Why is that? Because he wants you to understand he's in control. He wants you to understand That he's responsible. He wants you to understand that he's got it all taken care of. He wants you to yield the control of your life in the acknowledgement of him to say, it's not all about me. I want you to pause and consider this. What does it tell us about God? Because again, if God is self-revelatory, He declares who he is. And what he says about himself matters. We should see that in his declaration of who he is, I am the Lord your God, we should connect that that's declared to their deliverance, and we should see that when he tells his people how he wants to be worshipped, it's not just enjoined with judgment, it's enjoined with his steadfast love. And which we should see that he's holy and set apart and precious. And we should see that from this high place, he tells his people, recognize my worth and value and preciousness by resting. By trusting I've got it all taken care of. That's how you honor who he is. That's how you set him apart. Which brings us to the final six commands. The first four relate to how do we relate with him. The last six with how we relate to one another. 
Let's consider what they say about us. Number five, verse 12. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. It's pretty straightforward. But friends, what I want you to consider that this God who's self-revelatory, who declares, I am the Lord your God, has the right then to declare how then you are to live. He's setting us apart from the world. It's a funny reality being a parent. In my house, I think this was Friday morning, I hear one of my children yell at the one of my other children, no bounce passes upstairs. And you just laugh, like, what a strange rule. No bounce passes upstairs. Well, why is that? Was clearly one of the kids tried to bounce past a ball to somebody else and it destroyed something, right? Rules generally have a merit, they have a basis. One of the things in reality is God is setting apart his people. He's trying to set apart this idea that the world may not be like this, but because you're mine, because I've distinctively called you, I want you to be like this. That my people honor their parents. Verse 6, or move to number 6, verse 13. You shall not murder. God is calling his people to lead distinct lives. He's giving them a moral code. He's distinguishing for them that which is right for that which is wrong. It is a black and white issue. You don't get to decide whether it's murder or not murder. He's making it clear. You shall not murder. One of the commentaries I read talked about the reality that the One of the greatness about these words is that they contain verbs and not nouns that you can negotiate around nouns, verbs you get stuck with. Don't murder. But what about don't murder? Most of us don't struggle with that one much. So we press on. Being reminded that God has set us apart from the world, number seven. You shall not commit adultery. Built into the definition of God revealing himself, who I am. Built into this reality that he's provided for us, rest. Built into the reality that he's given us a relationship. God ties marriage into that. You shall not commit adultery. Adultery by the very definition is somebody who's married and messing around with somebody else who may or may not be married. It's a marriage statement. It ought to be a clear indication that marriage and sanctity of marriage is important. Is if God is setting his people apart and their marriages apart so that their marriages would look differently than the world. Brings us to number eight, verse 15. You shall not steal. The Lord is setting up a social order for his people. We see this here, we see this in the next two, but you shall not steal. You don't get to go to your neighbor's house and take his sheep and bring it to yours and call it yours. You don't get to take his hammer, keep his hammer, not give it back. It's actually got some serious implications for how we think of technology in our days. You shall not steal. Why? Because God has called his people to live distinctly because he is their God. 
want you to live and operate differently than the world. Brings us to nine. You should not bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't lie. Don't make false accusations. He's building a social order. He's building a moral code. He's building a black and white framework. Finally, number 10. You shall not cover your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And what becomes unique about number 10, if you really want to lean into it, and you should, as it commands 6 through 9 govern action, the 10th commandment is aimed at your heart. As if the Lord doesn't just care what your actions are, He cares about your heart and your motives. And He's calling them to set up, be set apart even in their thinking. That there are thoughts that are out of bounds for you and me. We don't get to live as liberally as we want. Why? Because He's the Lord our God. I'm not. So Calvary, what does this reveal about us? What do these six commandments reveal about man? Well, first, I think we need to see, and I think we should see it clearly, that the God who reveals himself as holy and set apart calls his people to be holy and set apart. There's no way you could look at this list, you could read through this passage, you could work your way through Exodus and get to Exodus 20 and not come away from the reality that God who's preparing His people to go to the promised land is calling them to be different. He's calling them to be distinct. That there are clear moral imperatives that come with following the Lord. That there's this clear push to holiness. Holiness meaning set apart. Meaning differently from the world. That the whole reality of holiness is that we're not called to conform to the world or its values or its opinions. We're called to be set apart. Now keep in mind, this is not calling you to be judgmental. It's not calling you to comment. It's calling you to live in a set-apart way because we belong to the Lord. And friends, I don't think we should run away from that, deny it, or downplay it. I think it's in the Scripture. I think we've got to deal with it. Secondly, the Lord gives ten commands, and they are widely, wildly broad in scope. And they hone in on what does it mean to love God and love your neighbor. And I think if you take them into consideration, it ought to bring to the reality that you and I don't measure up. In evangelism evangelism conversations over the years, if you bring up the idea that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, everybody sins, it is amazing the number of people who will say, I don't. Okay, well, let's pull out the Ten Commandments. It's just a simple list. 
do you do this? And it is amazing how fascinating. People will go, nope, I don't do that. Okay, well, God's defined that as sin. And I don't do it either. What becomes fascinating about this list, if you lean into it, is you see it in your lives. Now, some of them are easy, right? I'm not prone to make carved images to worship. I can't carve anything. But without even taking into account the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus broadens all the categories, I can very publicly confess to you that there are times I have other gods. There are times I worship things that aren't the Lord. There are times I've taken the Lord's name in vain. When I talk about God as if He doesn't have the worth and the merit and the value that it has, there's times I talk about Him as if it's not the most important reality in all of existence. And there are times I haven't honored my mom and dad, and if you wonder that my dad's here, you can ask him. It'd be a little weird, but you could. So what do we do with that? I mean, I, th- I think if we're here, we should acknowledge. This ought to be the place where we can acknowledge we fall short. I read a Timothy Keller quote a week and a half ago, maybe two weeks ago. He talked about the church ought to be more like a hospital waiting room than a job interview. And I shook my head like, what does that even mean? It took me a while to think that one through. And then I started reading more about what he meant by it. Hospital waiting room. Everyone's broken. Everyone has issues. Everyone needs attention. In a hospital waiting room, nobody's sitting there trying to impress one another. Everyone's sitting there kind of owning, you know, this is my, my arm, my heart, my head. Everyone's just owning where they're at. A job interview. Everyone dresses up and acts like they've got their stuff together. Everyone's there to impress, even to lie about who they are so that they can have the most impressive version Church, I think sometimes we can do that with one another. We can act like we're here just to impress. Rather than realizing that this is a... Jesus said himself, I came for the broken, for the wounded, for the hurting. Church, as we close, I want to give you three implications for the Ten Commandments, for these ten words. I want to end us... This way. First, first implication. And I know I've said this a lot this morning. I want us to recognize. It's always a good application to recognize. I want us to recognize that God is self-revelatory, meaning he reveals himself. I want us to realize that. And I want us to be a people who are willing to take what we think and believe about God and to take it back to the Scriptures. I want us to be a people who define God based on what He's told us in His Word. And I want us to be aware of the reality that the world keeps defining God differently. Because if we don't learn how to tune our hearts to that reality, listen to me for a second, because this is really big. 
in the culture we live in. If we don't tune our hearts to that reality, you're going to start listening to narratives of other people and their views of who God is that aren't based in Scripture, that become more and more and more and more compelling. I was telling somebody the last week I've had five or six really good friends walk away from the faith. And, and what's been fascinating to me is they've never been, they're not stories that are laden with, you know, I was studying the word and I just realized it's not true. They've never been laden with, you know, I was just praying and fasting and seeking after God and it, and it was revealed to me, I don't exist. It's always been a personal narrative. Well, you know, I have this friend who's really in this place, or I know these people and they're really struggling, and, and this has been their experience. And it's always been these outside narratives that people use to start to define who God is. And I understand, I'm not trying to rob anyone of their narrative. I'm not. But I'm trying to help us see that if we tune our hearts to the reality that God declares who He is, and His people, we allow God to declare who He is, we start to protect ourselves from that narrative that the world is preaching to us. That God is who you want Him to be. That God is who your preferences declare Him to be. That God is something less than He said that He is. I want us to be aware of that because increasingly as we walk in the days that we're called to walk in, we're going to watch the world and frankly, even Christians flatly deny that. And we have to be prepared. Secondly, I think we need to realize, this will get to an implication, that the law was given to make it plain that you and I could not achieve righteousness on his own. I think in the grand scheme of the scriptures, you read it all the way through, you start to see the law was given not to make people righteous, but to prove they couldn't be righteous. To prove that they couldn't do it. They couldn't be enough. Consider what Paul writes in Romans 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Why? Because they're all guilty. 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Meaning, the law can't make you righteous. Even if we boil it down to just ten things, you still could not keep it. That's why the law the whole lot, and even just the Ten Commandments, point us directly to Jesus Christ. You wanted to know where the hope was in the first half, I'm telling you, the Ten Commandments point directly to Jesus. Look at Romans 3, 21 and 22, the next two verses. But the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Friends, I think we're supposed to see in the Scripture that if you're weighed down because you don't measure up, if you're feeling pressure because you can't meet the demands of the world, because you can't meet the demands of the law, because you can't meet the demands of your own will, come to Jesus. Because Jesus lived the life you couldn't live. Jesus died the death that you could not die. And Jesus Christ has purchased our freedom from slavery so that by turning to Him, so that by positioning our lives towards Christ and believing in the sufficiency of His death and His resurrection, that you and I might walk in unity and union with Him. Church, if you read the Ten Commandments and you walk away going, guilty, blessed be your soul. And if you read the Ten Commandments and you walk away going, nailing it, your soul is in dire straits. It's not a good thing. It's not. You and I fall short. And that is exactly why God the Father would send His Son. That's exactly why salvation would be provided for you and for me that we could be declared righteous based on the completed work of Jesus Christ. Not my effort, not your effort, not my works, but because of Him. Which brings us to our third implication and an exhortation. Beloved, I think we should also see as though who Christ has purchased that we've been called to lead a life that is set apart. I think we need to heed that calling. If following the law is not about righteousness and it's not about righteousness, Christ has established our righteousness. Therefore, we obey God because we love Him. We don't obey God to love Him. We don't obey God so that He loves us. We obey God because of what He has already done on our behalf. So it doesn't earn us any merit with God. But it proves and it testifies that who He is and what He's done has been effective in our life. Does that make sense? We testify to the world that Jesus is true and that His redemption in our lives is true by our obedience. Not to earn favor or merit, but to testify to the reality of who He is. Beloved, you and I are to realize that we're called to live a holy and to set and a set-apart life. Paul uses these words in Ephesians 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you 
to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. First Peter 1. Peter reiterates that call found in the Old Testament. Be holy as I am holy. Be set apart as I am set apart. Be distinct as I am distinct. Church, in the next couple weeks, we're going to have to lean into that as we continue in Exodus, right? We're going to have to look at what does that mean, but foundationally, we have to have that idea, we have to have that understanding that we pursue holiness out of our love for Christ. We pursue holiness based on what He's already done for us. We pursue holiness because it is a good and right testimony to the world of who He is. So church, we're going to consider that over the next couple of weeks. What does it mean to be holy? Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, we are so thankful that you would call us together as your people. That you would call us together that we could be reminded of the gospel of Christ every single week. Father, for some of us are wearing ourselves out trying to earn favor. Some of us are wearing ourselves out trying to earn merit. Some of us are just getting worn down by the world. And Father, we need to be built up to be reminded of the completed work of Jesus Christ. That for 33 some years, He led a sinless life. He did what we couldn't do which made His sacrifice efficient and sufficient so that when Christ went to the cross, not only could our guilt be imputed into Him, but His righteousness imputed into us. Father, would You call us as Your people based on what You've done to lead holy lives? Would You call us based on what you've done through your son Jesus to lead distinct lives. And Father, would you continue to work on us, to mature us in our faith that we might believe you all the more and more and more and more. Father, would you use us to testify to a hurt and hostile and broken and longing world of who you are. Father, we trust that you're at work in us. In your son's name we pray. Amen.